Go, Broly, go, go. Go, Broly, go, go. I'm your host, Jose. This is another episode of Pop Culture Over Pizza. Today, we're going to talk about Dragon Ball Super Broly. This is a spoiler review. Welcome to another Pop Culture Over a Pizza Quick Slice. And as noted, today we're going to do a spoiler review of Dragon Ball Super Broly. So let's get right to it. So, as you're aware, in the spoiler-free review that I did a few days ago for Dragon Ball Super Broly, I had a great time at the movie. I really enjoyed myself. And in that review, I mentioned there were a couple of things that weren't perfect. So today, we're going to get into a little more detail so we can tell you about a couple of those things and why they might not have worked for me, what details may have been a little confusing or not as well fleshed out as they could have been. So let's start right from the beginning. First of all, the intro, the introduction to the Cold Force, the Frieza Force, and a little bit of the relationship between the Saiyans, King Vegeta, Planet Vegeta, and Frieza and Cold Forces, it gets explained a little bit in the beginning of the movie. And I have to say I really enjoy this part, but for the fact that I wish there were a little bit more information about King Cold and who he is. We still don't know what Frieza and King Cold's race is. We don't really know much about where they came from other than some fan fiction and some theories about what the name of the race is. And we don't know how King Cold and the Saiyans came to the arrangement where the Saiyans were essentially, well, slaves of King Cold that did his bidding, went off to different worlds, and basically, uh, you know, took them over so they could be sold to the highest bidder for both the Saiyan race and for King Cold and Frieza's army. So there isn't enough explanation about that part. I think a lot of Dragon Ball fans would have liked to see a little bit more backstory on King Cold and Frieza and the King Cold and Frieza forces. And of course, big Dragon Ball fans are waiting for Cooler to become canon. But that's not really a review of the movie. That's just more uh, a personal, I don't want to say gripe, just something that you know a lot of fans are really hoping to see Cooler become canon. I think that we will get cooler as canon eventually, but we'll see if that happens or not. So, while the King Cold parts weren't as good as they could have been, I did really enjoy the parts with Frieza right there at the beginning. It's interesting how Frieza's color palette was even swapped. He's a little bit more pinkish, uh, which was his color in the manga originally when when uh, Toriyama originally conceived Dragon Ball Z, or the, the Dragon Ball Z portion of the Dragon Ball manga. So it's nice to see that. That's a little bit of an Easter egg for Dragon Ball fans to see him in his original color palette. I like how they tied him into some information about what the Scouters are, how they were introduced to the Dragon Ball universe. And the scene works in a couple of levels. Uh, on the, in that scene, when King Cold turns over control of the Frieza, of the Cold Force, I should say, to his son Frieza... Um, the scene that follows where Frieza introduces himself really gives you a sense of how ruthless he is, how crazy he is, and in a sense how childish he is. There's a lot of rumors around there, or a lot of theories, that Frieza is actually still a child. And there's a couple of things in this movie that actually hint further at that. We'll get to that later. So this scene, you know, I really enjoyed it. For the most part, it worked for me. There were a couple of things that I would like to have seen more fleshed out, but King Vegeta was pretty awesome to see younger Frieza, to see you know, Zarbon, Dodoria, the Ginyu Force, a lot of characters from Dragon Ball Z that 
fans truly know and love, that was a nice little Easter egg for Dragon Ball fans also. You know, somebody who's not a Dragon Ball fan probably didn't know who the hell they were, but it was still a nice little addition that didn't need much explanation. So once we get past this scene with Frieza, King Cold, and King Vegeta, and we have that little introduction, we get our first introduction in the movie to the main character, the title character, Broly. Uh, first off, we see King Vegeta walk into a chamber where the Dragon Ball fans will recognize the familiar incubation pods that Saiyans are placed into after they're born so they can basically gestate in there until they're old enough and strong enough to go destroy another planet so they can sell it to the highest bidder. It's complicated, I know. But King Vegeta walks into the chamber and he sees Vegeta in an incubation pod, uh, comments on how powerful he's growing, and then walks over and sees Broly's in, in another pod and comments on what the hell he's doing in there with his son, this peasant character. Um, this is where we find out that Broly's backstory in one way is the same as it used to be. As a child, he's abnormally strong. King Vegeta comments how Prince Vegeta set all kinds of records and was the strongest Saiyan of all time at his age, and Broly far surpasses him by every measure. So that part of his backstory is still the same, which is good. Uh, the part that they changed, which is even better, is that Goku is nowhere to be found in this chamber. Kakarot is not in there, and Broly has nothing to scream about as an adult like he did in the Legendary Super Saiyan. Uh, the backstory where Goku is crying and annoys baby Broly, something that he remembers as an adult, and then drives him into a rage which unlocks his Legendary Super Saiyan power, yeah, that crap's not in here. That's something that's really great because they took this really good character in a lot of other ways that had a bad backstory and actually gave him a really good one. So this part of the movie is, I really enjoyed this part over here. This is some more good setup. This gives you a little bit more of the character of King Vegeta instead of just the simple jerk that he was in the old canon. This humanizes him a little bit more. There's parts that you can sympathize with, his pride in his son and his pride in the Saiyan race. You can see how angry he is, for instance, when Frieza leaves. So this scene helps to set up the main character, Broly. Uh, it helps to set up his relationship with Vegeta and King Vegeta. And then we get into the next scene. So this scene actually sets up the central conflict of the movie or fleshes it out a little bit more. And this is actually one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Uh, this scene also does the job of taking Paragus, uh, Broly's father, and humanizing him a little bit more as well. Instead of setting him up as just somebody who's completely bent on revenge, which yes is part of his backstory here, again you can see that he really cares about Broly. It's not just a, some weird, crazy, entirely abusive relationship. There's some aspects of this scene that set up basically how much Paragus cares for just for his son on that level and so this scene works because of that and the way that that the narrative of this scene goes is basically he goes to plead that King Vegeta not send Broly away he's basically gonna exile him to a planet called uh, Vampa and he goes to plead with him to not to not send him away and King Vegeta informs him that he's already sent the pod off into space and Broly's already on his way to this new planet. Um, so another cool aspect of this scene, I really like this and you've probably seen it in the trailer, you see Paragus just leap out the window of King Vegeta's 
throne chamber. He just crashes through the window and flies down to the to the launch pad where all the spacecraft are launching from Planet Vegeta, and he basically steals a spaceship, and he ends up hanging out with um, with Beats, a brand new Saiyan character, who ends up being a stowaway basically, and he explains to him that he's going to Vampa to save Broly. So that scene actually, again, it was one of my favorites, and it ends on a strong note because you. You basically see Broly's pod land on planet Vampa, and the part of it that's really cool is you see the pod open up, you see baby Broly in the Saiyan armor for the first time, and his eyes are slowly opening, and you see him from, you see from the first person perspective what he sees, and then you see him slowly start to look up to the moon. Dragon Ball fans know what that means when a Saiyan looks at the moon, he's gonna go ape, basically. He's gonna turn into the great ape or the Uzaru. But then the movie cuts away and you just see the title of the movie. So that's a really nice setup. This whole scene was one of the better scenes of the movie and it was probably one of my favorite scenes in terms of narrative. The scene that follows was another pretty good scene. We see Paragus and Beats crash land on Vampa and they basically start to search for Broly's pod and try to find Broly to see if they can rescue him. Um, and this is a very inhospitable planet. Uh, it's repugnant, in fact. And they, they go to search for Broly. They run into these insect-like creatures. They start to run into some of the wildlife of this planet. Uh, they land on what they think is grass, and they quickly realize that it's actually something that's alive. It's like something out of The Empire Strikes Back in the asteroid scene. Uh, it's this gigantic snake cat monster, um, and it just comes up out of the ground and tries to attack them, um, but they escape that as well, and they eventually end up finding Broly. And the little hint that they showed you before the credit scene basically comes to be a payoff because you see Broly, and again, he's still a baby, and he's killed this gigantic insect monster. Paragus is trying to reason how this happened, and he looks at Broly's armor and realizes that he indeed went into the Ozaru form, or the Great Ape form, and that's how he was powerful enough to kill this monster, Paragus commenting that even as powerful as, as he is as a child, Broly definitely wouldn't have been able to take out this monster in his regular form. So we find out that Broly turned into the Great Ape in this scene, and then we have a a scene where they go back to the spacecraft, Paragus and Beats, and they find out that the spacecraft is irreparably damaged and there's no way for them to get off the planet. Uh, there's a scene here that ties into a scene later in the movie that some people have commented they did that they didn't like, and I'll explain that later, of course, but the scene is that Paragus and Beats are having a conversation about how they're going to survive and they quickly realize that they don't have any food. So what Paragus does, again, to kind of show how much he cares about Broly, he shoots beats so that they can save more food, him and Broly, and basically survive on this planet. So this actually, again, sets up and relates to a scene later on in the movie, a character doing something to assist Broly, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So the previous scenes set up the narrative for Vegeta's father and for Broly's father. 
that leads to the central conflict of the movie. But of course, if you're retelling the story of the Saiyans, uh, a lot of people are excited about this. And we get to the retelling and the new canon for Bardock. Uh, we're introduced to Bardock as he's returning to planet Vegeta. Um, so that, or, or because, I should say, Frieza has summoned all the Saiyans back to planet Vegeta to give an announcement, or for whatever reason. I guess Bardock is basically trying to reason this out. And he's with his best friend from the Dragon Ball Minus manga, which didn't quite recanonize Bardock's story, but was used to recanonize it in this movie. A lot of what's in this movie is from the Dragon Ball Minus manga, for those of you that don't know. So he's with his best friend, Tora. Um, they land on Planet Vegeta, and they have a short conversation trying to reason out what it is that Frieza wants them all to come back to Planet Vegeta for. The part of the backstory that they didn't change, which is good, is that Frieza is still basically, or Bardock reasons, he's going to destroy Planet Vegeta because he's worried about the legendary Super Saiyan, someone that'll be strong enough to finally rise up against him and defeat him. Um, so that part of the backstory is still the same. Something that's interesting that they don't mention, if you've seen the Dragon Ball Super manga, uh, anime, excuse me, is you find out that the reason Planet Vegeta gets destroyed is actually not because of Frieza, but because of Beerus. So there's no mention of that at all in this movie, and I don't know if that's an oversight. To me, it kind of was, because I hope that's something that's going to pay off eventually. Beerus is their friend now, basically. He's part of the team. For them to find out that he's the reason that Planet Vegeta got destroyed would be something huge for the narrative going forward, but we'll see what they decide to do with that. We're introduced then to new members of the Frieza Force, Kikono, and uh, one of my favorite new characters, Barry Blue. Um, the easiest way to describe her, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, to me she's kind of like a, an even more smug Littlefinger because you know she's manipulating shit behind the scenes and she's one of the smartest people in the room and she probably wants to rule but she knows she can't quite beat Frieza yet but there's a really fun scene that you're going to see with her later and we get introduced to her here in the following scene we finally get introduced to somebody that was again not canon but was in Dragon Ball Minus we finally get to see her make canon in this anime uh, Gine, Goku's mom uh, we finally get to meet her in the anime, and she has a good enough role. She's not huge in this, but what she does essentially do, and what she does help essentially set up is, um, of course, the difference between this and the old backstory is that in the old backstory, Bardock had a vision that, that Frieza wanted to destroy Planet Vegeta because of the legendary Super Saiyan. Here, he just kind of figures it out, and... If Toriyama ever was influenced by Superman in any way, we all think that was the case with the original canon. If any doubt was there as to whether he was influenced by Superman in Goku's backstory at all, well, that doubt should be erased because in this movie, like, his backstory is he's, he's freaking Superman. Like, there's really no doubt about it. Bardock is Kal-El, and he sends him to Earth to save him because he knows that Planet Vegeta is going to get destroyed. So, yeah, basically the backstory is the same. Goku is Japanese Superman. Like, let's just put that to rest now. That's basically what happens here. Um, we have a little bit more exposition between Gine and Bardock. 
And then one of the parts of the movie that I didn't like happens here. So in the original canon, Bardock is kind of a badass and he fights through part of the Frieza forest to get to Frieza, speaks to him and challenges him and tells him he knows what's going on and that he's going to beat him and prevent him from destroying Planet Vegeta. Here I think it was like a bit of fan service that went wrong. They just had Bardock jump in at the last second and fire a blast to try to stop Frieza from destroying Planet Vegeta. No mention, no build-up. Like, this could have been done a lot better. He could have jumped in with a few Saiyans and tried to blast at it. There could have been the same fighting against some of the Frieza Force to get to Frieza like there was in the original canon. I feel like this was fan service that actually really didn't work. But the end of the scene is actually great. After Bardock's failed attempt to save Planet Vegeta, you watch from Frieza's perspective from his scouter, and as you see Planet Vegeta blowing up and being destroyed, you watch the scouter count down slowly to zero with some pretty cool music playing in the background. So that part of the scene worked. I thought it was, it was emotional, it was effective. It was a good retelling of the original way that Frieza destroyed Planet Vegeta. There's some cool effects, some cool animation in this scene, so that part worked for me. Right after the destruction of Planet Vegeta, there's another quick fan service scene that it, it was fine. It wasn't necessary, but it was kind of cool regardless. We get to see how and where uh, Nappa, Vegeta, and Raditz are during the destruction of Planet Vegeta and why they survived. And this scene, it's, well, they're on another planet invading it, obviously. That's pretty much what they were doing. And that was part of the canon before, but they showed here. Uh, and this canonizes Vegeta's brother, Tarble. Um, and by the way, this is, if you don't know about this, Vegeta and his brother, if you think about it, put their names together. Vegeta, Tarble, Vegetarble, Vegetable, Vegetable. That's basically what it's supposed to be. Um, I guess that's one of Toriyama's little jokes in the vegetable names of the Saiyans. But Tarbal is canon, and I don't know if we're going to see him because we actually haven't seen him in the canon. We haven't seen his character at all in the anime. But we'll see if he shows up, and we'll see if he's any different than what he is in his other appearances in non-canon media. So after that, we have our time jump. We jump to the modern day, and we see our main characters, Goku and Vegeta, fighting each other. Uh, Bulma is there and she explains that they've bought a new place that's a little further away from the city so that Goku and Vegeta can train against each other and everybody can just hang out and relax without those two basically destroying the city on one of their training afternoons. Beerus is there, Whis is there, and we get the setup for the conflict at this part of the story. By the way, just to to go back a little bit, there is a short scene that's kind of cool where they show the time jump and show some Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z moments in like this quick vignette, and it's pretty cool when they jump from the the, the older times to the modern day. But so we, we see our central characters, we see Beerus and Whis again, and we find out the plot of the story basically. Um, Freeze is coming, and... It seems that he sent the Frieza Force to take the Dragon Balls, six of which Bulma has in her possession at this home, uh, or at their, at their original home, I should say. And she finds out this with the appearance of Trunks and Goten, their only quick little cameo in the movie. 
If you look in the left corner of this scene, by the way, you'll spot the Pilaf gang. So that's their little quick mention or their quick uh, sighting in this movie. They don't say anything. They just react in the scene. But it's cool to see that, I guess, that they're still hanging around with the super crew. So Vegeta's crew, or I should say Frieza's crew, steals six of the Dragon Balls. And we find out that the last Dragon Ball is somewhere in the Arctic. So... Bulma and Goku and Vegeta with Whis set out to the Arctic to try and find the last Dragon Ball before the Frieza Force does. And there's a funny little part here where Beerus decides that he wants to relax at home and doesn't want to go. So Bulma leaves Bulla with Beerus to babysit and Beerus is obviously not happy about that. They all go up to the Arctic and we find out why Bulma was trying to gather the Dragon Balls. And this is a fun little parallel to why Frieza is trying to gather the Dragon Balls. Bulma wants to gather the Dragon Balls so she can be five years younger. But when Whis asks her why she doesn't want to be ten years younger, she says it's because she doesn't want people to think she's having getting plastic surgery. She doesn't want people to notice. And that's the setup, basically, of why she needs the Dragon Balls. So that's why Bulma wants to gather the Dragon Balls, and you would think that Frieza would want to gather the Dragon Balls up for the same reason that Frieza always wanted to gather the Dragon Balls, to wish for eternal life. But that's not the case here, and we get a funny little scene with Kikono and Barry Blue, which establishes Barry Blue's awesomeness a little bit more, in which they're basically asking, why does Frieza want to collect the Dragon Balls? Kikono asks, like, we will, do you want it for eternal life? And Frieza says no. You want to be invulnerable to damage. Frieza says, why would I want to make the game so easy? And Barry Blue rightly deduces that Frieza wants to be a little bit taller. Uh, this is funny for a couple of reasons, and this is one of the hints that I talked about earlier at Frieza's childlike nature. Uh, Frieza wants to be also, again, five centimeters taller, not any bigger than that, so that nobody will really notice and that everyone will think that Frieza is still growing. So that comment is another hint, obviously it's not confirmation, but it's another hint that maybe Frieza, even to this day, is still a kid. Uh, no one knows. We don't really know. Maybe we'll eventually find out that but we don't really know much about Frieza and King Cold and Cooler's race or anything about their backstory either, so who knows if that's something that Toriyama will ever want to flesh out. After this, we're introduced to two of the more central characters to Broly's narrative in this movie, uh, Chile and Lemo. Chile being the green... Uh, the green alien female that you might have seen in the in the trailers and in the posters, and Lemo being a sort of older-looking orange alien with a skull cap on. They are part of the Frieza Force, and they're tasked with trying to find powerful warriors anywhere in the universe. And it just so happens that they run into Broly and Paragus still surviving on planet Vampa. They discover that... Paragus is pretty powerful and that he used to be a member of the Frieza force and they're pretty excited to try to take him home to Frieza and add him to the Frieza force because of his power level and then the monster attacks and Broly appears and of course his power is off the scale um, they decide obviously at this point that it's time to take Broly and Paragus 
back to Frieza. And they set up their friendship with Broly in this scene. You see, basically, Broly is just basically a kid that's been trying to survive for this entire time. And this is the first time we see him as an adult. Little scenes of Chile and Lemo becoming friends with Broly are on the way back to taking him back to Frieza. You see, again, how childlike Broly actually is. He doesn't really understand much about the world. They just have some food that he's never seen before. He doesn't know what to do with it until Paragus tells him that it's food. And then once he realizes that it's food, he basically chomps down on it like somebody who's never eaten anything before in his life. And then after that, we get to the scene where Paragus finally interacts with Frieza and continues setting up the conflict. Uh, this is where Frieza basically finds out that Paragus wants revenge on King Vegeta and on Vegeta and decides to use Broly and his power against Goku and Vegeta so that he can finally kill his enemies. This also includes something that's the same from the original Broly, um, the original Broly movie. We find out here that there's a collar that Paragus has a button to that he uses to control Broly when he gets too angry and he starts to get out of control and his power starts to get too dangerous. So again, this is a cool little scene and we see Frieza basically doing what Frieza does, trying to destroy Goku and Vegeta any way that he can. After this, there's a couple of more scenes and, you know, just to get through it, I think that pretty much any scene with Chile, Lemo, and Broly in this movie works. There's a scene where... Broly gets in, in a fight with this character that tries to, to talk to Chile and just ends up like pushing Lemo down and Broly gets angry and almost kills this guy. And then Paragus pulls out the button to stop Broly and we see you know just how powerful the shock is that can bring Broly down whenever he's getting a little bit too angry. So Chile confronts Paragus for doing this and says that it's abuse and with a little sleight of hand steals the remote and Paragus gets summoned away to go talk to Frieza at this point. Um, this is basically where Frieza just reveals a little bit more of what, he, what his plot is and then we have a scene where Broly and Chile and Lemo hang out again and just find out again a little bit more of like how Broly is more of an innocent like character that you can empathize and sympathize with in this movie more than the evil Broly from the original movie. Um, Chile reveals of course that she stole the remote and then makes the massive mistake of destroying it which yeah of course that was a bad idea. By the way I should definitely mention that this scene also sets up um, another element of Broly, basically you find out that the green sort of sash or whatever it is that he has around his waist is the ear of Ba, one of the gigantic monsters, the Empire Strikes Back green snake cat looking things that I mentioned earlier, which was apparently a friend of his. His only friend was this gigantic monster on the planet Vampa, and that Thing around his waist is something that he keeps for sentimental value. So again, more of Broly's childlike nature, more big changes, but I like this backstory for Broly. I like it a lot better than the one that they had in the original. I have to say that again. So for me, this is not a bad thing at all.
from here, basically, we're about to get into the main conflict. There's a little bit of exposition and some funny scenes with Goku and Vegeta finding the Frieza Force and finding those of them that had the six Dragon Balls, but it seems that Frieza basically arrives at the same time, so obviously this complicates things. From here, we have the setup for the battle. We have the introduction between Goku, Vegeta, Paragus, Frieza, and Broly. And after a couple of funny back and forth uh, bits of dialogue between Frieza and Goku and Vegeta, Paragus and Broly, we get to basically the conflict that we've all been waiting for, though we've all been waiting to see since the original Broly movie and well, nobody cared about really the other two Broly movies, especially Bio Broly. That was trash. And we get into the fighting. Like I said earlier, there's there's really not much bad that you can say about the combat in this movie. The combat, the fighting, the cho fight choreography from beginning to end. And by the way, they fight for about 40 minutes, pretty much nonstop. There's, it's just all out crazy fighting from here on in. Broly goes out and goes straight for Vegeta and goes on the attack. And I'm a Vegeta fan. For those of you that are Vegeta fans, you're going to like this movie. Vegeta usually ends up getting punked. And he's been getting better and better in Super. And the movie's attached to Super. He still got punked in Resurrection of F. He should have gotten the win there. But Vegeta is a badass in this movie. Vegeta gets the upper hand on Broly quite a bit in the early going of the fight. And Broly, he gets stronger and stronger as the fight goes on and eventually overpowers Vegeta. But Vegeta just beating on him and you know, taunting him and eventually getting upset and telling him that he's getting sick of this and then going Super Saiyan for the first time, beating on Broly for a bit. This is this is one of the better fighting scenes in the movie with great animation. He beats on Broly in Super Saiyan for a little bit. Broly starts to catch up and starts to overwhelm him in Super Saiyan. And then we get to see something that we've never seen before. We get to see Vegeta go Super Saiyan God, the red-haired God form. We'd, we'd ever, never actually seen him use that form before. We saw him skip right past it and go to Super Saiyan Blue. But the reveal of it in this movie is really cool. And I was, I was glad for the introduction, even though the scene is pretty short. It's really awesome to see Vegeta go into Super Saiyan God. And this is one of the first times that we start to see just how powerful Broly is. Vegeta you know, eventually overpowers Broly in Super Saiyan God and he blasts him deep down into the ocean. What does that do? That just basically makes Broly really angry and establishes him. Um, yeah, he's kind of like the Hulk in this movie. The more angry he gets, the more powerful he gets. And he does something here that sets up a precedent possibly, for those of you who know how Super Saiyan 4 works, for Super Saiyan 4 to be introduced to Dragon Ball somewhere down the line and into the canon because Broly takes the power of the Uzaru form, the ten times power, but he stays in his human form. He stays in his regular form. So he's somehow able to take that power and keep it down in his more agile, quicker form 
basically becomes like an Uzaru transformation. And yeah, at this point, he starts to kick Vegeta's ass. It just, he just goes crazy. And this is where we start to see some of the legendary Super Saiyan power, even though it's never explicitly mentioned in this movie. Something that's cool though is that when he does turn into this Uzaru-like form, he starts to blast energy out of his mouth, just like the Uzaru would. And it's just really cool to see this transformation. Broly's just screaming constantly during all these scenes and just beating on everyone, just quickly overpowers Super Saiyan God Vegeta. And then, well, then it becomes time for Goku to jump in. And Goku, as you've seen in the trailer, has his little warm-up scene where he's hopping around a little bit. This was in the teaser trailer that we saw before we even knew it was Broly, where we just saw glimpses of Broly's body and Broly's hand um, before we found out that it was him. And then, of course, Goku and Vegeta fight. So this is also, obviously, a very, very cool fight. Uh, I didn't like it as much as the Vegeta fight, but there were definitely some moments that were really awesome. Notably, Goku has a new move. When he goes Super Saiyan God against Broly, um, after getting beat on in the other forms, basically like Vegeta and slowly transforming into the higher forms, he goes Super Saiyan God and uses something that's being called the Super Saiyan God Bind, where he's able to completely stop Broly and freeze him in his tracks, not unlike what uh, Hit does in the Tournament of Power. And you would have to know a little bit about you know Dragon Ball Super to see that, and I know that's not in the American uh, dub yet, they haven't caught up to that part, but in the Japanese version, he's able to stop characters in their tracks. And Goku does something like that here, has a little dialogue or monologue with Broly where he mentions that they fought a lot of bad guys, but he doesn't think that Broly is one of them. Um, so this scene is really cool, and then, you know, he, he transforms into Super Saiyan God and uses this attack Broly ends up reversing it and uses his energy to trap Goku, which is a pretty awesome scene. But after this, um, Goku goes Super Saiyan Blue as Broly starts to get stronger and stronger and starts to quickly overpower him in Super Saiyan God. Um, and we see Piccolo for the first time in this scene as well. Goku speaks to him telepathically, which is pretty cool. But in this part, we see, I think we see a lot of hints, by the way, of the future of Dragon Ball and the future forms, because we see Goku and Vegeta's hair turn green at certain points in between transformations, and we definitely see Goku briefly go into Ultra Instinct, the, the mastered Ultra Instinct for a moment while he's trying to go from Super Saiyan God to Super Saiyan Blue. Some people are, have said that it might not be, but if you look at the aura, it definitely looks like the glow that he has when he goes Ultra Instinct in Dragon Ball Super. Something that's commented on by Beerus, that it's a very distinct glow, and you definitely see it here for a moment. So I think this is hinting that maybe Goku is learning how to unlock Ultra Instinct, that we might see that in the future. I don't know. But Goku you know, takes on Broly for a little bit in the Super Saiyan God Super Saiyan form, or the Super Saiyan Blue form. And even then, he's still unable to defeat him. And, you know, things are kind of even for a while, but 
Broly is still getting stronger and stronger, and Goku is just trying to keep up. And here's where I mentioned earlier, there was a scene that some people mentioned that they didn't really like, that they thought was kind of forced. Frieza thinking, and Paragus thinking, that Broly might be at the end of his rope in terms of how much power he has, because he's, you know, getting beat on, and he... You know, they're not sure that he'll be able to beat Goku even though he's getting stronger and stronger. So what Frieza does, remembering that when he killed Krillin way back when, Goku went Super Saiyan, is just like when Paragus shot Beats earlier in the movie, Frieza, in order to unlock Super Saiyan, which, by the way, Broly hasn't even gone Super Saiyan yet, he's still in his base, or his Uzaru base, if anything, Frieza kills Paragus and blasts him in pretty much a mirror of the same scene from earlier in the movie. He blasts him right through the chest and kills him so that he can make Broly unlock Super Saiyan. This part is awesome, and there's definitely throwbacks to the original legendary Super Saiyan here. You see kind of that circular energy that just engulfs the entire world, kind of bubble out, and we see Broly turn into his Super Saiyan form for the first time, which is just epic and looks really really cool the animation in this movie is great this is one of the parts that really really shines um something that's kind of funny here is at some point in this scene i guess when broly is floating up in the sky and blasting down just hellfire onto goku he randomly loses his shirt you look you look up at one point his shirt is there, and then he gets hit by a couple of blasts that he looks to be deflecting, and then his shirt is gone. So I guess that's how it got just, it got torn away at that point. Um, then Vegeta basically comments and flies up to Goku and says, Hey, you know what? You're not going to be able to beat this guy by yourself, which Goku agrees to. And then we have a cool, but it was kind of short. I wish we had seen a little bit more of this. We see Goku and Vegeta try to tag team and take on Broly two on one. Um, they do the the Kamehameha Gallic Gun that you see in the trailer. There's a little bit more CGI here, which was okay for me. I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it looked pretty cool. I do like how Dragon Ball sometimes has different animation styles in the same episode or in the same movie, and this was another cool instance. Um, but there's a quick part where Goku and Vegeta take on Broly. Like I said, I wish it had been longer. And one of the funniest parts of the movie happens right here. Goku and Vegeta realize that even still, the two of them together can't defeat Broly. So they fly up to where Frieza is and use Frieza as a distraction. Broly ends up focusing on him and ends up beating on Frieza for an hour. Well, Goku and Vegeta use instant transmission to go visit Piccolo and learn the fusion dance. This scene is funny. This scene is cool, just like Gotenks has in the past, and just like in the Fusion Reborn movie where they fought Janemba, they, they mess it up a couple of times, and we see the, the fat version of uh, Gogeta. Um, so they mess it up a couple of times, and you see cutaways to Frieza getting his butt kicked by Broly for an hour. And then, of course, we finally get the reveal, and we finally get the canonization of Gogeta. They get the form right. They have a little scene where they think up the name, a funny scene, and then they go off and instant transmission over to Frieza 
to start the battle against Super Saiyan Broly. Uh, what follows is a quick little conversation with Frieza that's funny, and then we see Broly attacking Whis. This gives you an idea of how powerful Broly is because Whis comments that, that even though you know Whis can still get away from Broly and you know he can beat him, he says that was a close call. So that means a lot. That shows you how powerful Broly is because if he even came close to hitting Whis, who's one of the most powerful beings in the universe by far, can one-shot Beerus, who can one-shot most of the characters in the show, that just shows you how powerful Broly is. Then, through instant transmission, Gogeta jumps in and the battle begins. This fight between Gogeta and Broly, it's definitely what you were waiting for. It is amazing. The battle from start to finish is just a brutal slugfest. Gogeta is pretty much quickly getting the upper hand, which he well should, but Gogeta starts in base, and then Broly overwhelms that by a bit, has to turn Super Saiyan. Then Gogeta and Broly have an energy blast clash, and basically break time into another kind of weird but still kind of cool CGI scene. Um, they're fighting in this area <clears throat> and then Broly finally goes full power uh, Super Saiyan, or I guess he gets close to it actually, he goes full power in a minute and this is where Broly's shirt rips off. He goes, he charges up and gets so big that his armor explodes off of him and then Gogeta, sensing that Broly is going to start to overwhelm him at this point, finally has to go Super Saiyan Blue. Which, man, if that doesn't give you an idea of how powerful Broly is, because Gogeta in this canon is even stronger than ever. He is a multiplier now, finally. Instead of Goku and Vegeta's power put together, it's their power magnified. And they have to go Super Saiyan Blue to beat Broly. But when they finally do... They, they attack each other, and they get out of that weird time breaker, which that also has precedent in Super, by the way. Again, you can look at Hit for that. But they get out of that time breaker, and when, when Gogeta finally goes blue, this is when he finally starts to overwhelm Broly, and Broly just really can't handle him anymore. And, oh man, the attacks that Gogeta busts out with. Wow. I mean... The attacks that he uses on Broly, and that Broly survives, by the way, which is, again, a testament to Broly's, po to Broly's power. Like, it's insane how powerful Broly is in this movie compared to how powerful he used to be. Um, we see the Stardust Breaker, but it's even more powerful here than it was when he used it to one-shot Janemba. And guess what? Broly survives that, too. Then, you know... The, Gogeta goes on this final blitz, some of which you saw in those trailers, those teasers that came out a little while back, finally completely overwhelms Broly, and then we see Chile and Lemo basically ambush Kikano because they want to save Broly. They see that he's starting to get overwhelmed, and for me, this is gonna, this might divide some of the fans, but I think once Broly is finally basically about to get taken down, that Kamehameha that, that Gogeta uses is probably the coolest one I've ever seen. The shine, that look in his eyes when they zoom in as he's charging up, 
there's this, you can see kind of the light of the Kamehameha just reflecting off of his eyes. Just the way that whole scene is animated, the implication of that Kamehameha, because you see Broly kind of finally start to come out of his Hulk rage and start to realize what's going on. And just before he's about to get hit by it, you see his face. His pupils are back. He's, he, you can see that it seems that he's starting to become aware of what's going on. And he screams in terror just before he's about to get hit by this Kamehameha. Now, again, I've seen some complaints about this, but you know, some people thought it was anticlimactic or didn't like how this ended. I did because Chile and Lemo wish for Broly to be saved and sent back to the planet where he grew up, Vampa. So Broly disappears in the moment just before he gets hit by that Kamehameha. The reason why I like this is maybe Broly was going to survive that. The implication was that he would die, but we don't know what would happen. So we don't know the limits of Broly's power, and that's why I actually like the fact that even though other people found this anticlimactic, I like that he got teleported away and saved just before that Kamehameha hit. And as a result, we just don't know the limits of his power. To me, that's really cool. And this is where the fight ends. Man, the, the fight was just really, really awesome. So that fight was super, super epic. That fight ends. We get to see a few throwbacks. We get to see a few Easter eggs. We see Broly charging up in his full, full power form. And it's definitely animated to look like the original legendary Super Saiyan. This part definitely doesn't disappoint pretty much at all in my opinion some of the animation is a little is a little bit better than some of the other animation in this scene but it's not as jarring as the one scene by the way when they go to learn fusion with piccolo when they teleport back you might notice it there's a bit of a jarring point where the animation looks significantly worse than any of the other animation in the movie so that was kind of weird but you know hey that that is what it is and then, you know, we get the exposition for the end of the movie. We see uh, Chile and Lemo, they steal a spaceship and they run off to Vampa to, to be with Broly, to hang out with Broly. And, you know, we see that everything is resolved with them. And then we see Frieza basically state his intention. He's going to get Goku and Vegeta one day, one way or the other. And he's going to come back for Broly now that he can, now that he sees that Chile and Lemo uh, went to go stay with Broly. He says, leave him alone. Chile and Lemo will civilize him, and when he gets his mind under him, at some point I'll come back and I'll recruit him to destroy Goku and Vegeta anyway. So, I don't know. Frieza maybe didn't learn his lesson. Who knows? And then after that, we get the final setup. I mean, this is going to basically set up for me the future of Dragon Ball Super, which, by the way, has just been confirmed. It's coming back. Dragon Ball Super is coming back. But we see Chile and Lemo and Broly, and they're surviving just fine on Planet Vampa. And then Goku instant transmissions over to Planet Vampa, because he wants to talk to Broly. Now, of course, everybody's a little bit skeptical, but he comes with some of Bulma's capsule corp capsules full of uh, shelter and food to try to win over Chile and Lemo and Broly. And, you know, they're apprehensive, and Goku says, you know what, I basically don't care as long as you get, as long as you allow me to come and fight Broly every once in a while. Because he might be the only person I know who's definitely more powerful than I am. 
that's our setup for Dragon Ball Super the future and basically this is where the movie ends so again I thought this scene was good and it was really cool at the end when he introduces himself because he never said his name to any of these characters earlier Chile and Lemo ask what his name is he says I'm Goku and in a throwback maybe to the legendary Super Saiyan and maybe a, a little hint that Goku's embracing his Saiyan roots a little bit more he tells Broly to call him Kakarot and that's it that's how the movie ends uh, there isn't anything else beyond that there's no after credit scene and as you can tell I really enjoyed the movie from start to finish so hey everybody out there on the internet I want to thank you for joining me for this pop culture over pizza Maybe not so quick slice for Dragon Ball Super Broly, our spoiler review. Check us out on Twitter. Check us out on Instagram at PCOP Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, even though we really don't have much stuff there yet. We promise that we will soon. Look us up on Apple Podcasts and like, subscribe, comment. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't. Thanks for joining us for another Pop Culture Over Pizza podcast. And for everybody out there in the internet, stay geeky.